You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusuf Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through, and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Antler VC Cast. Today, we have with us Steve Mellowish, co-founder and former CEO of PropertyGuru, a profitable, fast-growing Asian property portal, an angel investor, advisor to startups, and venture partner with Wavemaker VC in Singapore. Steve is also passionate about tackling climate change and poverty. Welcome to the show, Steve. My God, Steve, I just read that out and realized you wear so many hats. I mean, how do you do all of this? And, you know, what's a, what's a day like in your life? Like, what did you do yesterday? I manage things very, very badly. I realize that uh, time is very, <laughs> it's not possible to control time. And I try and squeeze too many things in the time and I do a very bad job at it, to be honest. Uh, so um, I try and put, I try and put family first. And then and that kind of goes in my diary. I try and put a little bit of health stuff in the diary. And then the rest kind of comes around that. So yesterday was a bit more, a little bit of wave maker activity and a bit more sort of uh, sustainability focused stuff. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of priorities, family, health, then work. Then the rest. Okay. Yes. Nice. Yeah, very good. Was that always like that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, that's only been like that for the last maybe uh, two years or so. Uh, since uh, handing over the uh, CEO role at Probably Guru, uh, yeah, it was um, up until that point. You know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of uh, a bit of a workaholic, I guess. Um, and uh, if I do something, I kind of do 150. percent And doing that and having a family and having family time or health doesn't kind of work for me. I'm not very good at juggling things, so uh, I'm far better off just focusing on one thing. So now the way to do it for me, at least, is just to put some stuff in the diary, like the family and health. And then those are the things that don't move. And then the rest, you know, works around that. But uh, I'm, I'm not the best person to start talking about time and productivity management. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I love it that you uh, schedule it in and really focus on it. I remember one of the um, least impressive things someone told me back in the day, this was more than 10 years ago, I was working at McKinsey as a consultant. And a very senior person told me that he, he prioritizes family. He makes sure there's something he never skips, which is every Saturday, 9 to 11, he schedules time for his family and he's with his son. And he genuinely thought that's impressive. And I was like, what a depressing life is that? But <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you do, think exactly. you do more than two hours uh, every Saturday. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's, I think just, it's just one thing to add on. I think it's not so much about the time. I think it's about the quality of the time. So it's around... Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm not the best person on this, but it's about engaged, present time with yeah. the family uh, yeah. and the phone being away. And someone said to me recently, you know, it's not about what you say, it's about what you do. And if you are sitting there on the phone in front of your kids and, you know, what kind of message are you yeah. sending out? So, I, I'm horrible at that. My kids tell me almost every day, 
that I should get rid of my uh, phone. Yeah, they're presumably not telling you; they're presumably messaging you. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, I'm telling them get rid of the phones. <laughs> I have three kids, and and I that ex- exactly what you say, right? Uh, my no like don't disturb time is usually six to eight. And I think the main thing is just keeping the phone away and that in that witching hour, as I call. And, uh, but it's hard. You can't just, you know, you, you can put it and I block it a lot of times in my diary, but it's something that you have to enforce yourself and, and make a priority. So. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> at, at least as long as your kids want to do something with you. Like when they're older, my oldest is 12. Like it's uh, tough to, uh, tough to get attention anymore. <laughs> I, I wanted to jump to a different topic. Like you're very passionate about impact. Uh, and I was very curious about like what uh, in your thought process led to that or how, how, how did you become so passionate about it? I think it's something which has always been uh, of of interest and to me um, in terms of you know I think about some of the values instilled in in me as a kid and and my, you know my parents and particularly my mum was very much around you know you respect everybody and you respect everything and that's fundamental core value of kind of live with for the whole of my life. And, um, I, you know, I had very, very fortunate that I, I came from a good background and, you know, I, you know, we had reasonable amounts of money and things, but, you know, when just seeing, seeing the level of poverty, for example, in places like Laos, not that far away from here, you know, with, we went traveling for six months and, uh, and saw, saw people living on the poverty line, very close to, you know, very, very rich countries like Singapore, where people were having, you know, 12 or 13 kids and two or three would survive because of lack of uh, good quality water even, you know. Um, and so that they kind of started to bring it home. And so it's always been there um, for me, particularly around, you know, kids. Uh, and then more recently with when I had kids, uh, I kind of then realized that, you know, a lot of what are the, the, the bad things that are going, all these records that are being broken, broken currently, you know, every single month there's something around, you know, record temperatures being broken or record floods or record rainfall or record fires or, you know, country by country, continent by continent, just getting louder and louder and louder and louder. Was that, to be honest, it's not going to affect rich countries so much. It's not going to affect uh, me and my generation so much it's going to be my kids and, and their kids and so suddenly I was thinking well okay what kind of world are the ki- my kids going to grow up in and if I sit here with some money in the bank and some time and I just party and have great time and I wouldn't be able to live with myself and so I say okay what can I do to use my time and money productively that will make the world a better place for my kids and their kids uh, and so that's kind of what keeps me awake at night I'm, I'm a worrier, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried a little bit about the future. Right, right. What's the what's sort of the um, most impressive slash innovative thing you've seen uh, in that space? Is there anything you want to highlight uh, to to have like the opportunistic uh, lens in terms of being able to influence things, uh, for example, with the environment and, of course, good business opportunities? I think in term with I guess a little bit of a investor hat on. You know, I I see. Uh, I've seen a lot of interesting opportunities um, in different different aspects around, you know, food waste, for example. You know, I'm working with a company uh, called Limitix, which is, uh, you know, uh, managing food waste for FMB and hotels and this kind of thing and, and airlines, and um, you know, doing some great 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 stuff there, just in terms of raising visibility, measuring it, and therefore being able to change some of that. Um, there's quite a lot of stuff going on in the construction space. Construction uh, and building is one of the largest single contributors to carbon emissions globally. 
and it's obviously a very traditional industry and is very much around throwing throwing people and and make it as cheap as possible because there's so many layers in the whole process. Mm. Uh, so I'm quite passionate about how do we make construction carbon neutral um, and starting from a very, very, you know, low base you know, yeah. because there is nothing yeah. at the moment yeah. and so um there's a couple of companies i'm working in that working with in that space who for example are trying to electrify the whole of the construction site create a mini smart grid on the construction site using batteries um a company called amped based out of hong kong um which reduces carbon emissions by 80 percent and reduces noise down compared to an old-fashioned diesel generator mm-hmm. chugging away uh so smaller you know uh cheaper less carbon emissions um uh and also same with with um with water a company called hydroleap doing something similar around you know using electrolysis instead of old-fashioned chemicals for the last 30 40 years you know so so companies like that so there's some, inter- some interesting stuff going on around that i think there's some things obviously that we can do generally all of us um and and one person alone is not going to make an impact but all of us collectively can make an impact um so sitting in this room here you know aircon's on 21 degrees doesn't need to be on 21 degrees could it be on 24 degrees um but instead of you wearing a jacket i'm normally carrying around <laughs> yeah. you know like a fleece or something because it's so freezing cold yeah, 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 yeah. um and so d- just to, that's just mind-blowing the fact yeah. that you know most people are walking around with something to stay warm inside yeah it's ridiculous uh, yeah, and yeah. that's and that that for example someone like singapore that's you know there's no reason why um, it should be so freezing cold yeah. inside. Yeah. And yeah. The problem is, of course, you know, the more you turn up the aircon, the colder it gets inside, the warmer it's going to get outside, and yeah. it just accelerates the whole process. So, you know, we, we need to take some responsibility and start taking individual action. Yeah. It's it's the little things. Yeah, no, but yeah, that's absolutely true. When I came to Singapore a few years ago, uh, that was something striking to me. Like people back home, I'm from Finland, asked me like, "How do you deal with the climate? It's so hot." I'm like, "Actually, I'm cold most of the time." Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, I'm saying it's the weirdest part, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. But but one thing that's I, I think you are in a sort of unique position to have a view on um, is sort of your private investments are quite a bit around impact, like yep. we discussed. But then at the same time, uh, you're a venture partner at Wavemaker, where you probably take a, a bit more of a generalistic view of things as well. Uh, now I'm curious, like, do you see a difference in the type of founders that actually go for like impact type businesses and the ones who don't? Um, is there a difference there in your view? Um, so like in terms of them being maybe mission driven or how do they look at things, right? Yeah, I th- well, I think from a personal point of view, regardless of whether it's Wade Maker or my individual investments or companies I'm working with, um, you know, I, I have a strong preference and desire to work with people who want to make the world a better place. Uh, and whether it's around, you know, the climate or it's just trying to help people, um, whether it's SMEs or helping, edu- you know, people get educated, that kind of thing. You know, our companies would like to work with, whether it's Wave Maker or, or, or non-Wave Maker. Um, clearly, if you're working with a more social enterprise, let's say, you know, women-led social uh, entrepreneur sitting in a rural village in Bangladesh who is building a small business maybe around renewable and using solar, for example, um, and selling that solar, then is that going to be a global scalable business which is going to become a decacorn in the future? No. But is it having a really big impact on society and the community in that village? Yes. Is it having an impact on climate? Yes. So then uh, the way I see this is a little bit of a, uh, and I, it's kind of how I see a bit more impact investing is a bit more of a blended 
finance. Right. So I'm not so looking. You are at, willing to kind yeah, of sacrifice a bit. Absolutely, of because yeah. you're looking at what's the bigger impact on the climate, what's the bigger impact on the social community, um, and therefore I'm not expecting to see a 30, 50, 60, 70 percent IRR. If I can get five or six percent, yeah, I'd be very, very happy. But as long as it's having that triple yeah. impact, yeah, uh, on the community. So, and exactly, and that's the sorry, sorry, no, but like, that's I, I think if you look at uh, the difficulty lies in that exact equation for when you're wearing the professional investor hat, because basically for you to sacrifice the financial upside, you would need your limited partners in the fund to basically say, I'm willing to accept less returns. And I guess that's, that quite rarely happens unless you're very clearly like uh, labeled as an impact fund. Is, do you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, I, I do. But at the same time, I think, so So if you think in the context of a fund like Wavemaker, um, clearly there are mandates, fund mandates and, and um, LP uh, expectations and that's around financial return predominantly but the world is changing you know we've seen you know larry fink's e- uh, email shareholder letter the last two years banging the drum louder and louder and louder saying we as financial institutions need to put our money where our mouth is two years ago said we will do in the future this year that she said we are now shifting quite aggressively you've got pension funds doing the same thing so you've got this bottom up and top down kind of pressure you've got the the funds and the, and, and the people with the billions and trillions of dollars saying actually we need we we owe it to ourselves and the future to be more respectful of the community and and environment and you've also then got a bottom-up pressure from consumers you know i was talking to someone from bhp pillarton who is you know uh, obviously resources company um he's a group treasurer and he was doing his roadshow and half an hour of the hour in the US is around sustainability. You know, 20 minutes of the hour in the US is around sustainability and five minutes in Asia, but it's coming, but it's not quite there yet. So I think eventually what we'll see is that sustainability will cut through all companies and all companies will have to be thinking about this. And sustainability doesn't mean lower return, just means they're doing things in in a sensible way, which means more consumers will put their money with this business because I fundamentally believe there's going to be this ongoing trend. The consumer pressure is going to drive decisions and also money. But less. Yeah. Like I, I always tell our founders that like in the current day and age, still with the way like mainstream VC looks like, if you want to build a mainstream VC backable company and have impact, you got to do something that is has in, inherently has impact, but it also fully profit oriented. So take Sama helping migrant workers in Great. the construction space, inherently a good model to support the migrant workers who are right now living in awful conditions. Absolutely. Uh, but it's a full for profit thing down the line. And hopefully this changes actually a bit and, and we just look at things differently. Yeah, fundamentally someone like a Sama, which is helping the construction workers, is there about making making money. Yeah. It's about but instead of taking nine months of their construction workers' salary, you take one month. You know, so you leave them more money in their pocket and their family's pocket. Yeah, exactly. Switching gears completely, I'm always fascinated with sort of origin stories. So if we go back to the year 2006, that's when we founded Property Guru. Yeah, uh, but I really yeah, it's 2007. Yeah, okay. got going. So, so you're there. You come to Singapore with your wife. You notice that uh, it's very, very difficult to uh, you know find an apartment. Model exists elsewhere. What goes through your mind? Like, are you immediately like, I'm going to build, uh, you know, the next. Yeah, I mean, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't immediate. I, I mean, to be honest, arriving in Singapore was a complete accident. I mean, I was, uh, I was sitting in London with a post it on my wall which said Digital Asia Startup. And I was there for that. For me, meant this is by 2004 into 2005. Uh, where, where are the opportunities in 2004, 2005? China. 
China's opening up, tech's growing, the VC market was growing, China really wanted foreign talent. Um, and so I was talking to VCs and startups in Shanghai. And that for me was, okay, this real China, real Asia, going to do it properly and you know, build a business out, out, out of China. Uh, thankfully, that hasn't happened. But, <laughs> uh, I think it would have been quite tough, but um, particularly with, with, with a family. Uh, so, but at the same time, my wife's company had a reorganization and they offered a job in Singapore. We went, oh, shit, Singapore. It's oh, so boring. Singapore. That's not really Asia. <laughs> yeah, it's not really Asia. It's, you know, but it's going to be easier to go from Singapore to Shanghai than from London to Shanghai. So let's at least come here first and then we'll go. And that was 15 years ago. And <laughs> here you are. <laughs> here, yeah. So I, I, ran, I ran around the high-tech Singapore going, right, let's, let's plug into the startup scene. And the startup scene was seriously uh, lacking and the VC scene was seriously lacking. And uh, uh, I made a couple of uh, angel investments and ended up helping one of those companies uh, for, for about a year and a half, which is a mobile content business focused around comics, fans, and artists. Uh, and I still think that's actually quite an interesting little business, actually. Um, but then the, the investors and the founders fell out and so um that business kind of collapsed just at the time that the singapore property market exploded and so yeah i had to move out the property that i was renting and uh it was just uh oh it's horrible it was just horrible it just you know if go online there's nothing online and then just wading through you know about three inches thick of thousands and thousands of three lines of text villa marina telephone number no photographs no floor plans no description no map where is it you know as a, as a, as a new foreigner it's actually quite hard and, and if you're then trying to buy a property which in Singapore is obviously expensive you know close to a million dollars um, it's uh, it's not a pleasant process because you've got no information and you're relying on friends family to help you you're relying on an agent to sell you something trying to sell you something developers trying to sell you something and uh, you don't have any information and you're out of control and it's a bit stressful so uh, I put myself in the shoes of a buyer if i'm spending that amount of money and don't have any information um it's gonna be scary so that's kind of how it started but for me you know i i'd, I'd spent you know many years talking and working with found, with founders and businesses saying you know the, the key thing you need to focus on is you know choose a really big market uh, and a, a big pain in that market and then also choose something which you're passionate about or you know pretty well um, and uh, you know so i knew nothing about property and had no interest in property is <laughs> zero interest uh, and in Singapore That's which is obviously a small market of 5 yeah. million people in a, in a sea of six or 700 million in Southeast Asia but um, yeah I mean fundamentally it's still a digital media digital business in Asia and a startup with a big pain Right. So, fo but focus can yield benefits. Uh, so, um, uh, but you ended up uh, finding this uh, you know exciting partner a Finnish guy called Yanni. How did that happen? Yeah, by accident. I think <laughs> you've heard this story before. <laughs> uh, my first angel investment was in a is in a Finnish startup with a you know just a, a fantastic uh, genius, a mathematical genius who'd built a an AI uh, platform which did. Um, uh, uh, learned behaviors to be able to, to personalize content and, and advertising, et cetera, very, very early on. Um, and, um, but then I spent probably about four or five years fighting with this founder. So I'd never worked with Finnish people again. And, um, and, so, and no yeah. cultural stereotypes there. No, 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 but, um, I don't have any apart from Finnish people. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. no, no, actually, yeah, that's a great, I've had some great fun in, in Finland and, and Finns, but, um, that was a very bad experience. So I said, I'd never work with, if I can start a business, I'm not going to work with a Finnish person again, because it was such a horrible, 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 you know, emotionally scarring for me because I lost so much, uh, energy, 
um, and the business, you know, could have could have been a you know a, a billion dollar business if if the I believe the CEO had actually gone and done something with it. But he was very happy just running it as a like a hobby, um, and that was a lesson for me as well. That not everyone is in it to build you know the big the big business. He's a lifestyle entrepreneur. Yeah, it was a lifestyle entrepreneur, and then and I was, and I completely wrote off that investment. You know, it was forty thousand euros, and I thought, okay, it's gone. Uh, in 2004 and then last year you know got a check for five hundred thousand dollars and uh you know, was very pleasantly surprised yeah. <laughs> uh shocked um so yeah not complaining but Christmas um, came yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. no so so i now um now love fins of course Oh yes, that's great. Oh, I, I, I can I can feel the love here. Right, right. No, no. So I, I, I met Yanni uh, in 2006, and we, you know we started working together part time because we obviously didn't know each other very much. But you know Yanni has just been an absolutely amazing partner for me, um, and he's just an ama- amazing person. You know? So we're completely polar opposites. You know, eight boxes, Myers Briggs. Um, and complete polar opposites on all eight of those um, very different people, um, but which could obviously mean the business explodes or implodes or it is successful and we complement each other. And that's ultimately what happened because we had the same vision and the same values and that's kind of what kept us together you know, during the tough times, basically. Um, and so it's, it's been a fantastic, fantastic experience. I mean, we, we would do two-day leadership workshops and Yanni would not say a single word for the two days. <laughs> and then in the last hour, he'd say five words, which were the most important five words of the whole two days. Uh, incredible, incredible guy. Yanni is a true fin. Like, but is there any advice you'd want to give to uh, aspiring entrepreneurs out there when it comes to like co-founders election? I'm sure there are a, a bunch of vis- people listening who, you know, don't yep. necessarily have a co-founder yet. So what's your advice to them? Apart from not working with fins, you mean? Yeah, apart yeah, yeah, from apart, yeah, okay. So avoid fins at all costs. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, I guess ultimately, um, ideally, someone you know very well, um, because then you know how they behave in the good and bad times. Most cases, that's, you don't know that. Or you don't know that. Um, so it's around, you know, spending as much time as possible before jumping in. Uh, in a in a relatively low risk way, if you can. So what we did was, you know, we both. I had my startup. He had he was doing consultancy in, in India, you know. So we both had our day jobs, and then we worked together as weekends part time. So that was one way of getting to know somebody a little bit, um, and then you know, being really super crystal clear around the vision and the values, and trying to tease that out by spending time and having communication around that. Uh, what we also did was, you know, five days a week, we were in the business, just doing our own kind of jobs around building the business. And at weekends, we would, you know, either have on a Saturday or a Sunday, we'd have a half, almost like a half day where we would just spend time talking about the real issues in the business. And that kind of then aligned us when there were particular issues. What about, so that helped. Sorry, what about spending time outside a work environment. And that's something that, you know, because you are spending so much time with your co-founder that you want to see them in, like you say, different scenarios, not just in work, but social settings as well. What, what do you, what do you say to that? That's something we encourage, you know, our, our, our founders when they're trying to uh, form their teams. Yeah. I mean, we did that, uh, but it wasn't a conscious decision. You know, we would, you know, see each other morning, lunchtime, night, mm-hmm. seven days a week. Um, you know, so, you know, we kind of did that well, accidentally. It wasn't like a planned okay. thing where we'd actually let's, let's have some social time to get to yeah. know each other. It just kind of happened that way. Um, but of course, anything you do to get to know somebody in, you know, so, um, is obviously a good thing. 
Um, but it all comes back down to the vision and the values. You know, so how long do you want to be building this business for? Is it 10 years, 20 years? You know, um, is it around the money? Is it around the purpose? You know, what, what's really, really just having some com- having some honest conversations yeah. around those issues um, and through spending time with somebody, you start to get to know the values a little bit. Um, so a lot has been said about this co-founder pairing, like comparing it to marriage with an expiry date, especially with, uh, you know, where, when it involves, um, if you have a, a real clear vision and plan or it's, it's a marriage with no expiry date. So you have to take it even more seriously. I mean, half of marriages have expired dates, right? This and that's statistically true. Right? Yeah. 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 So at least, no, it's been said that in fact, with your, in a marriage, you can divorce, but with business, it's harder. <laughs> Or well, you can, obviously, but it's, yeah, it's a bit messy, I guess, in both scenarios. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I spent more time with, with Yanni in the first five years of the business I did with my wife, by far. Um, so you really get to know someone that way. Um, and, you know, had to make some really pretty tough decisions uh, together. And that kind of when you start to have these kind of tough decisions when things are going bad or, you know, in, or things are going well, but you have to, someone comes along and writes you a big check with lots of zeros on it and says right i want to buy your company you know that that's kind of when it all really crystallizes around that vision and values really is it about the money or is it really about something else and then and clearly you see see that at that point but it is it is a bit of, it is i think it is a little bit of luck though i think it's you can it's like interviewing somebody for a role at sea level in an organization you can put them through multiple interviews you can do psychometric tests you can do panel interviews you can get Back, you know, background reference checks, all this kind of stuff, and you get a picture, but really don't know until someone's actually in the organisation. I want to talk about, you know, how, you know, when you came into Property Guru, you were the only player in the market. You created something new, you, and I'm sure you faced lots of challenges. And now we're in a space. You have there are other competitors in the market that do similar things. Um, you know, uh, how has this changed the way you uh, uh, position property? Uh, prop- property guru and uh, you know you were going to go public and then that uh, didn't happen last year so yeah so what sort of challenges have you have you faced as you know the industry has evolved and there are other players i think uh, the industry evolving other players is is nothing new i mean people talk about it as if it's a new thing that's happened but every single year of the business, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, we had two, three, four new entrants. We had, you know, the two largest media monopolies, you know, SPH and MediaCorp, who had everything to lose in terms of their TV and newspaper advertising, launched their digital online presence in 2007, three months before we launched. We had a, um, a vertical, um, another property portal, which started in Malaysia, then launched in Singapore, three months before we launched. And so on day one, we had this competition. And then the following year, we had new players come in and the following year, we had new players come in. And then we had the big media monopolies relaunch and instead of having a horizontal classified and then started having verticals and cars and jobs and property, etc. And so it's, it's, been, it's been a continuation. It's, um, you know, there's, uh, you're gonna, if it's a valuable large market which real estate is in southeast asia 250 billion dollars every single year transacted in real estate in in southeast asia uh, you're going to have a lot of competition and you have a lot of people raising money investing and and you know one year i think you know uh, sbh were outspending us almost 10 to 1 on marketing every single av- uh, uh, taxi and bus had you know st property yachts plastered all over it um 
doesn't mean you're going to it doesn't mean you're going to win so how do you how do you continue to grow and you and for us what we said was look first of all let's build a really strong singapore business and so you keep innovating and keep improving so you know we went out and took photographs of all of the hdbs in singapore all of the condos in singapore you know we were the first to bring in you know google maps um and and we you know went out and bought and acquired and redrew um, ourselves, the floor plans in Singapore. Um, you know, we have the first to connect into like Facebook with our with our listings. So we're constantly innovating. How do we make the consumer proposition, you know, better? How do you improve the quality of the content? How do you make it more transparent? So ultimately the consumer can make a decision. And that vision and focus continues today. You know, so we invest more and more every single year as a percentage into product technology uh, to make that consumer experience better and just stay focused on that. Um, so it wasn't until 2012 that we essentially expanded internationally. Um, and uh, what, only once we built this business in, 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 in Singapore, which was, which was strong, had a 70% market share uh, and about 15,000 agents. And that has not changed since 2011, 2012. Um, doesn't mean you can't relax. You have to keep investing in innovation and keep improving keep improving it's not the sort of thing you just once you've done it you've done it uh you gotta you gotta carry on um so yeah which we have done okay right i'm also curious about your personal uh, journey so you know it's one thing to uh, you know be a founder and start in the very early days and it's another thing to run an early stage startup and it's a whole other thing to run a big company and you know Throughout this whole journey, you've been at the helm. And I think you've emerged as someone I would still look at as a sort of balanced individual. So how did you look at the person? You clearly don't know me yeah. very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you say we always have weird self-reflections about ourselves. But uh, so how did you look at personal growth um, throughout this whole thing? Did you, you know, think about it at any point in time? Did you just go with the flow? Any advice to give to founders out there on the topic? So in terms of personal development, um, I guess previously when, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my working life in corporate um, and obviously in the corporate environment, you have a lot more of a structured personal career development plan and this kind of thing. Uh, and that, what, but but things don't change so much. Actually, that's the funny part. Like you, you have a lot of personal development plans while being in an environment where it's very slow incremental change. But in the startup, it's like uh, completely yeah, different. So, so then the learning is, you know, 150% on the job. Um, and, you know, you, I learned more in the first one or two years of Property Guru than I did in my 10 years in corporate life um, because there are no rules. You're making things up as you go along. Um, you don't have any resources. You don't have any money. You don't have a brand. You don't have an office. You don't have team, et cetera. And uh, so therefore, you have to be very, very creative and you have to make up the rules and you have to experiment a lot. And that basically means you're going to make a ton of mistakes and you're going to have a crazy daily roller coaster of emotions. Um, and through that process, you know, you, you, get, you get some learning. Um, but with particular challenges, you know, I, um, you know, I relied on, on mentors and coaches and people to support me through that process. So obviously my session with, with Yanni on the weekends um, was one part of that. I belong to a group called Entrepreneur Organization, which is about 15,000 uh, entrepreneurs globally. And we meet with my forum of eight people uh, once a month for four hours and we pour our hearts out around business, personal, family, and, and everything else. 
and um, it's a highly trusted environment. And so when it became particular issues around hiring, firing, growth, challenges, personal struggles, balance, then I was able to then share that and get some support back from those entrepreneurs. And then particular challenges like uh, when we went from one market to four markets in four months and all the scaling challenges around that, um, you know, almost breaking the company during that process. Um, you know, I, I had a coach um, with me and Yanni helping us with some of the scaling challenges, you know. So how do you build a leadership team? How do you build um, accountability in the organization rather than just flying around sorting it out like superhero entrepreneurs that we were you know but how do you actually start to build an organization where it starts to get a bit more professionalized you know some processes and systems and you can have accountability and ownership in the organization and um you know so i had a, had a coach um paying from monks hill uh if you know him you know great guy was great- he an investor no, no, he was a friend of one of the investors and um, and he, for about 18 months on and off, you know, provided some invaluable coaching because he'd, he'd, he'd built and sold and IPO'd three or four businesses already and uh, so had gone through a lot of the challenges we were faced with um, and took a very founder-centric approach, which was, you know, what do you want? What are your emotions? What are your feelings? How do you, rather than from a business point of view, rather than from an investor point of view. And that was really valuable in thinking about, well, how do we, why do we not have accountability in the organization? And just spending an hour or two hours just on this one subject and ultimately putting a mirror in front of our faces saying, because you're flying in fixing problems all the time, therefore no one's going to sort the problems out themselves because you they're going to you know you as a superhero is going to fly and fix it so it's about time that you just stand back and let people either fix it or if they don't then they just have to step up and then and then again in the right the whole ceo transition process you know when Yan and I decided that you know we wanted to then you know make ourselves remove ourselves from the from the top of the organization that was essentially a four-year process and, and managing that to the end point where we had to then find a CEO and, and hire and then transition that CEO with a new CEO. You know, we had a coach for that, coaching me, coaching Yanni and coaching the new CEO and then doing that individually then together. And that kind of de-risked the whole process as well and, and enabled us to have a very successful outcome as a result of that. Right, right, right. Yeah, so Peng is a very thoughtful guy. And so what I'm taking away from that is like, don't be afraid to rely on external coaches and you look for different coaching, uh, you know, at different parts of the journey, wherever suitable, right? Absolutely. Um, did you, uh, you know, did you look at any of your investors as mentors or was that more of an arm's length thing? And, and uh, you know, any thoughts you can, you want to share on that? Should it be an arm's length thing? No, the investors in the early days, investors were a bunch of individuals, early stage investors, and uh, they were, didn't really know our business very well, but they were very supportive to us and so gave us a bit of that emotional support and guidance. And we had debates on a quarterly basis and we presented, had a dinner, and then we talked about what the key issues were at that point. And that was, that was, that was really, really useful. And, um, but when it came to that whole growth challenge, you know, when we went out, we, we, we started our first big, well, you know, for us it was a big fundraiser, $55 million fundraise process. Uh, in 2012, uh, we said, okay, what is our ideal investor? What, what do we really, really want? And uh, at that stage, we thought, okay, let me you know, start to think a little bit about exit. You know, so we want a VC who can help us with the exit process. And so we, that was our ideal. And we went out and then we got, you know, we were very fortunate. We had 11 term sheets on the table, you know, which is, which is a prop, which is a nice problem to have, but it is a problem because suddenly you got 11. And what surprised us actually was the number one that we ended up selecting was not a VC after all. It was actually um, a subsidiary of Deutsche Telekom, which had property portals around Northern Europe. 
And they've been doing the same thing as us, but for 15 years and had all of the learnings. They had a branding team, they had a pricing and packaging team, they had a network security team, they had like an army of people online marketing. You know, we had like a fraction of that. And so we thought, okay, well, we can try and make the mistakes ourselves and learn ourselves, or we can get some free consultancy by working with these 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 individuals in the organization. So they, the Scout24 CEO and COO were very supportive. So look, you come in, tell us what help you need. You have to pay for the flights and accommodation, but essentially the rest is, you know, it's up to you. What we get from it is access to your innovation. In our, we have a large organization, which is a little bit slower growing now, a little bit more corporate now. We want access to innovation and you know, the dynamism of a startup. Um, and you get access to some experts. Uh, and that was fantastic. You know, we, we've got some great experience then and some great support then uh, until Deutsche Telekom sold the business to somebody else and a, a private equity firm who had a very different objective. And then more recently, you know, when we, we brought on board, you know, TPG and SquarePeg and MTech in 2015, our challenges were a little bit different at that stage. Our number one challenge at that stage was, yes, we built a successful business and a big part of the revenue generation was coming from real estate agents, but property developers is where big amount of money should be coming from. And it's not. And we, you know, I'd spent five or six years hitting my head against a brick wall trying to get the developers to move online so we said how do we start to change this and what we realized is that in order to change some of this behavior a lot of the property developers were family owned and um, we didn't have relationships with the owners in many cases the 60 70 80 year old patriarch um still running the business and so you know one one thing was how do we change this and so we um so very thankfully you know one of our investors tbg uh, ex uh, Gannon, who is ex Kazana, um, uh, had a lot of the relationships and, um, and you know, been running Kazana Investments for a while and you know, knew a lot of Singapore families and Malaysian families and was able to open some doors for us, which really, really helped. And then we had Square Peg, which you know, was founded by this guy called Paul Bassett, who started Seek, which is the largest online jobs company. Um, if you, if you think, don't think about LinkedIn, um, and um, had gone through a process of, of scaling from Australia out to Southeast Asia, bought JobsDB and JobStreet and China, et cetera. And so, you know, we had value from him in terms of the whole experience around that internationalization and, and building a successful and, and listing it, you know, 400 million and it's now 10 billion, um, you know, gone through all that process. And so, you know, we, and, and we had MTech in Indonesia, which, you know, you know, deep Indonesia experience. So, yeah, we were, so it was a, very thoughtful in terms of what kind of experience yeah. do you want at what value point. add for the business, you know, every every step of the way, yeah. but not necessarily so much for the personal growth from the investors. Uh, so, would you say it's better to have someone who's maybe more at the distance when it comes to personal coaching to you as a founder? Yeah, because you want someone who you can really, really trust. Uh, if you, if you know, because you, if you want to improve something or re- challenge something, it's probably quite deep inside you, and that means sharing very deeply. And doing that with someone you don't trust or maybe don't know that well is is very very hard. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna wrap up and go to the last part of you know a look back and a look ahead, as we call. If there was one thing from your past that you can change, what would it be and why? From property guru, it'd be just uh, the expansion process, which almost killed the company because of. Obviously, had the organization just on Singapore, and we then added Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, product tech, consumer apps, agent apps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and stretched the organization to breaking point. And my desire to do that was based on a fundamental fear of losing the opportunity um, because the barriers to entry, in theory, are very low. Just a website, right? Property website. 
but my realization now is that things just take longer. It's an evolution, not a revolution. Um, and so it's around, you know, it had, if it waited two or three years to enter one market, it would have made that much difference? No. Uh, to build, build things, a sustainable long-term business just requires a bit more of a considered, thoughtful, prioritized process rather than rushing to try and do everything all at the same time, which is a, probably a fundamental failing of maybe some or most entrepreneurs. Uh, they see opportunities everywhere and want to, do it, and want to grab all those opportunities. And I guess what I've learned to do, be a bit better at recently, is to be a little bit more focused and prioritized about what I get involved in and say no to certain things. So things take time, basically. Everything things take time. And, and that's take time. To really All the successes you see today in, in whichever industry, and it may appear as an overnight success, but probably been 10, 20 plus years in the making Absolutely. since they started. Yeah. And, and, I, I think the, and I think the final thing to mention on this um, is, um, you know, if, if you have an idea on something just to, and you believe in it, it's just take that first step. You know, I see time time again including antler you know two years ago just an idea and, and i thought yeah it sounds interesting but you know how are you really going to do that it's gonna be quite tough and i see time time again where people say okay we've got conviction in this space we've got a dream and it might get a bit messy it might look a bit ugly to start off with you both put that one foot forward and next foot forward and next foot forward and people are focused on something else and they look back and see you know two years later oh shit, how did that happen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know just it's just that just that yeah. constant yeah. constant focus it's gonna be brave to be ugly and uh, hard work. Which you, you know, you're doing a great job at that, yeah. I would say. Particularly the ugly bit. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I was, I was, I was wow. going to say thank you. Sorry, sorry. I was, was going to say so much you. love in this room. Yeah, you've you been very smile, easy on me and I've been very hard on you. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll <laughs> take that back. <laughs> well, I can take that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and Steve, last one. I mean, any um, quote you live by in life, any theme song you have that keeps you going, you know, you're, you're doing so much, you're investing you're thinking about the future is there uh, it's building on what i just said i think it's just just do it if you be- if you have an idea um and you believe in it just do it i think far too many people hesitate and they look for all the risks yeah. and the downsides and overanalyze and overanalyze and um particularly people thinking about moving from corporate into or into a startup or they've got a salary and thinking about startup i i'd just say if you know time goes so fast and uh, if you if you don't do it, you may regret it. You know. Yeah, so just I, I've shared this before, but like my biggest regret is not entering the startup space before. You know, I was comfortable in a corporate setting, doing really well, nice salary, this that. But then, you know, growth was limited, and uh, I just couldn't influence anything. Uh, I was a handless chicken, like I call it. So I see everything around and around, but I can't do shit about it. And then now it's the headless chicken problem with the startup ecosystem. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but you, but you yeah. now can have a big impact. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really insightful. Thanks very much for having me. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.